0: Welcome to LSCIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. In 1832, Mary Smith presented the first women's suffrage petition to Parliament. 86 years later, after a long and often violent campaign, the representation of the People Act granted some women the vote. Although today the suffragettes are generally seen to have won their fight, the journey was far from smooth. Splits occurred over what tactics to use, and there was disagreement within the movement over who they represented. 100 years on, all women in the UK may now have the vote, but gender equality, political and otherwise, is still far from achieved. As the suffragette story reveals, identifying an issue is the easy part the journey to bring about the change you want may be far harder. In this episode of LSEIQ, Jess Winterstein asks, can activism really change the world? They
1: marched, firebombed and resisted force-feeding, all to secure the vote.
0: From the left, the right, from the radical to the uncommitted, they came.
2: Whatever the figures without doubt, one of the largest gatherings, let alone protest rallies, in English history.
1: Two campaigns nearly a hundred years apart. The first changed the course of history, leading to women's suffrage in the UK. The second, despite the call coming from millions, failed to stop the UK from going to war in Iraq. The freedom to protest is seen as a fundamental human right and history is littered with tales of people joining together to bring about change. Tactics and approaches may differ, but whether a movement numbers a handful or hundreds of thousands, at the heart of any cause are the people campaigning to improve the world. Dr. Armina Ischenyan is Associate Professor in LSE's Department of Social Policy and convener of LSE's course on Social Movements, Activism and Social Policy. I asked her how activists dealt with the issue of change. What do we mean by change? Is that sort of something that social movements struggle with in terms of defining what exactly they want to achieve or is, is the idea of what the change should be something that brings people together at the start?
3: I think this is a very important question. Sometimes change as a word is substituted with impact. Very often we see that and I think here we need to really think about what. why do people join? Why do people join movements or groups? And there can be Multiple reasons, including you know, for friendship, for a sense of identity, for a sense of belonging, but it very often is also you know they they have political goals that they want to achieve some kind of transformation in society, some further justice, and I think you know very often if we narrow it down to policy change or legal change, then we can say that many movements are unsuccessful because achieving that isn't something that happens in the short-term, it's a long-term effect and it can take, if not years, decades, you know. We've seen that around LGBT rights and women's rights and disability rights, for instance. But I think there are other movements which are often referred to as prefigurative movements. This is a term coming out of anarchism, which is about not just seeking change out there, but also embodying the change, being the change we want to see in the world. So I think a lot of movements are also trying to work at that level in terms of changing how communities work, how people engage with one another. So I think they can achieve change. It's about how we frame that, whatever we're evaluating, to consider if change is happening. If we take the most recent example in terms of anti-austerity struggles and for instance, around tax justice or inequality even, some of the things that we are now taking for granted in terms of talking about inequality or the 99 percent weren't even on the table 10, 15 years ago. So our conversations, the public dialogue has changed. So I would say that is part of um, social movements and the activism that people have taken part in. Dr Chris Rosdale
1: is both a Fellow in the Department of International Relations at LSE and an activist in the anti-militarist movement, which is opposed to the establishment or maintenance of a state military force. Activism, he explains, is something that impacts us all.
2: Part of what I think is interesting to look at when we look at social movements is people in a variety of configurations organising to change the conditions of their lives, to push against the imposition of different forms of domination. And that's, in a lot of ways, that's just the history of the modern world. You know, the modern world is born through revolutions against colonial power, revolutions against monarchies, revolutions against feudalism. And so in one sense, the whole, of, the whole of modern life is structured through that kind of rebellion. And so sometimes when we talk about activism, there's a problem because it's easy to see it or think about it as an appendage to normal life as kind of something external that sometimes turns up and makes things a bit more difficult. And I think we probably get a bit further when we recognise that it's at, if we take that very broad definition of activism to be kind of people fighting back, then that's, just, that's, that's fundamental to our history.
1: The desire to protest may be fundamental, but do people outside the system really have the tools needed to truly pressure those with power to change course? Do marches achieve much beyond building solidarity amongst those attending?
2: It's become axiomatic to say that marches don't work and traditional forms of protest don't work because a million people marched against the war in Iraq and the war still happened. And there's a lot of truth to that, and I have a lot of scepticism about marches as a political tactic. I also think it's fairly likely that the scale, the unprecedented scale of opposition to the Iraq war, probably limited some of the excesses of those wars, probably made it much harder for governments to marshal for future wars. I mean, it's become, it became politically impossible for the UK to intervene in Syria, in part because of the opposition that we had to the Iraq war.
1: Of course, marches are only one way to protest. Direct action is also often used to try and bring about change. But while provocative acts can often have more immediate impact than marches or petitions, if you sit in a tree, it's unlikely to get cut down after all, what happens the day after? I asked Chris how activists dealt with the fact that in the long run direct action might just be delaying the inevitable rather than creating lasting change.
2: There's like a, an interesting paradox with direct action politics because part of what makes direct action powerful and what makes it very empowering for the people involved is that it's, it can be incredibly tangible. Like you can close an arms factory down for a day and that factory can't operate. And that there's something that I think is very attractive in that tangibility but at the same time, that can also be quite seductive uh, and misses the fact that the arms factory will open again tomorrow. And I think I think one of the ways to respond to that, it's challenging, but I think one of the ways to respond to that is recognizing that the point of direct action isn't that it happens occasionally, is that it becomes uh, integral to a politics of resistance such that you make, that the, there's a kind of, uh, a phrase that comes up occasionally in radical uh, history, uh, a radical theory of um, rendering oneself ungovernable. And so uh, the example that's sometimes used is the Iraq war, where a million people marched against the war. And those marches were important and I was on some of them. But while millions of people were marching against the war, a few people, a handful of people, a very small amount of people, were taking direct action. And so a group in Ireland went and destroyed the runway in Shannon Airport to try and stop U.S. planes from taking off from there, and there were similar actions against arms factories around that time. And I think if 1% of the people who had marched in London had gone and done similar things, the government couldn't have taken part in that war. You know, it doesn't take that many people to engage in that kind of action for those policies to become
1: How do organisations and sort of activists govern themselves in terms of doing something that will create an actual impact like that but without alienating people who might be on their side?
2: I mean it's a question that all social movements again have a kind of ongoing internal conversation about what's acceptable and what limits should we set on what's acceptable. Um, And often what breaks social movements up is disagreements around what's acceptable. I think most anti-war movements have a relatively settled understanding that protests should be non-violent. They don't always have quite as settled an understanding of what counts as violence. Uh, now one of the classical uh, arguments there is whether or not property damage counts as violent. You know, is it a violent act to go and uh, destroy property? Uh, and I'm not talking about you know, someone's front window, but kind of Uh, a a war plane Uh, as 20, 21 years ago uh, this year four women snuck into a military base in uh, the north of England and smashed up uh, a plane that otherwise would have been sent to Indonesia uh, and used uh, in the uh, occupation of East Timor. And there are some points of view that says that that counts as an act of violence generally kind of more radical actors don't really accept that damaging property, especially property that is explicitly designed to carry out wars, really counts as violence. And actually, kind of spectacular acts of property damage uh, become the flagship moments of the movements. Those are uh, the moments that people really celebrate.
1: While some may draw the line at non-peaceful resistance, radical action might be what tips the balance between an issue gaining wider attention
3: or not. Armina Ischanyan explains. Obviously, we live in a media-driven world, so what is activism about? It's about getting attention. It's getting the attention of politicians, policymakers, of also the general public. And the way you do that is to do something that will attract media attention. And sometimes that means breaking the law, unfortunately, in order to achieve that attention. For instance, throwing, I think it was about 10 years ago when um, somebody threw condoms filled with dust In parliament and I can't remember which exactly action it was but I remember it it achieved you know a lot of notoriety or Greenpeace activists scaling tall buildings these kinds of actions are not within the law but they attract attention and then that attention opens conversations and perhaps puts things on the agenda that wouldn't have been there um, one of the groups that I that I, you know that I've done some research on, for instance, is Sisters Uncut. Their actions, for instance, include running onto the red carpet at at movie premieres and doing die-ins to attract attention. Now, that's not exactly breaking the law, but it is about attracting attention. But where do you take that? I think again, the next step is also once you've got the attention, what do you do with that? What do you once you have someone's ear, what do you deliver? And I think that also is very important because you can't just say, I'm you know, going to express my anger unless you have something to propose, an alternative to propose. And I think many movements do have alternatives. They're just not often listened to or actioned on. And so I think this is a continual process of give and take. Now, some actions can be perceived as counterproductive. One never really knows how it's going to be perceived. But I think, again, um, these tactics of drawing attention through spectacles, through performative actions or through naming and shaming have been used very successfully um, in order to get someone to do something because again here it's about leverage about what do you have apart from your moral anger, from your indignity. So I think that is something that groups in terms of repertoires of action and strategies need to take very seriously.
1: However a campaign is fought When its calls for change go unheeded, should campaigners move on to other causes? I spoke to Dr. Aisha Shabuchu, Associate Professor in Human Rights in LSE's Department of Sociology, about her new book, For the Love of Humanity, which looks at the World Tribunal on
4: Iraq, set up shortly after the 2003 protests failed to stop leaders from going to war. My book is based on the ethnographic work I did with the World Tribunal, which was constituted by a global network of activists around the world, which came together uh, right after the war in Iraq began. And their aim was to constitute a public civil society tribunal to put the United States, United Kingdom, and their allied forces on trial for war crimes. How did you become involved? Uh, I became involved uh, in Istanbul actually, uh, I'm from Turkey and I was doing my PhD at Columbia University at the time in New York City and I, w- I had a radio show in Istanbul and my co-host uh, told me about the project and asked me to get involved as an activist. She knew I was living in New York City and the idea of the tribunal was that it would happen all around the world in different cities in a networked form and culminate with a final event in Istanbul. So she said, would you be interested when you go back to New York in building the New York City leg of the tribunal? That's how I got involved. Has there been
1: tribunals like this before?
4: Yes, uh, there have been many. Uh, In living memory, uh, we can think about the Russell Tribunal on Vietnam, which happened in 1967. It was headed by Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre, and Simone de Beauvoir, James Baldwin, all the figures, important figures of the 60s were involved in putting the United States on trial uh, for war crimes in Vietnam. There's the Permanent People's Tribunal, uh, which is run out of Rome. And there's been a Russell Tribunal on Palestine, and there have been uh, tribunals on migrant rights in Europe and uh, private corporations, the examples are numerous. So it's quite an established way of... It's, It's an established tradition. What's different about the World Tribunal on Iraq was that it was organized through a global network and it was organized in such a way that there were no leaders, there was no central leadership, rather it was a horizontal network of individuals and groups working together towards a common aim.
1: The immense challenge of bringing together activists from around the world is brought home by Aisha's description of the tribunal as a translingual, transgenerational, transcontinental and transformative story. As I suppose anyone that's tried to bring groups of people together knows it's it's not always easy um, and especially with activists who come from different cultures and countries that might have different levels of what they consider to be yes. sort of acceptable or unacceptable and how was,
4: was that coordinated without a leader? Oh uh, it's a very difficult question uh, because it was so very challenging and I found that very challenging How do people with different ideological commitments coming from different uh, political, cultural uh, backgrounds come together and work together and create a common ground for um, uh, uh, trying to execute a certain political task? It was very challenging. The, I have a whole chapter on the founding meeting of the World Tribunal on Iraq where these ideological and political differences in relation to international law in how people understood the reasons and consequences of the war in Iraq were negotiated and they came to the table with very different ideas about what a global civil society tribunal could look like and what language it could speak, what kinds of actions it could take, how it would relate to international law and dominant discourses, etc. So it was very challenging. There was a lot of laughter as well as a lot of tears in the process.
1: Was there ever a moment when it looked like it might not
4: be possible? Yes, uh, I would say as late as March 2005, uh, it looked like the culminating session to take place in Istanbul might not happen, but it did, and it was great success in June 2005. The World Tribunal on Iraq found the UK and US guilty of
1: war crimes, but the impact of the judgment beyond this is hard to gauge. I asked Aisha what
4: lessons could be learned from the endeavor. Well, the question of impact um, is very difficult. In activist work, I think. Often you don't see the results of your activism until years later. There are short term goals, there are long term goals, there are goals that are not instrumental. For example, one of the uh, aims of the World Tribunal on Iraq was to establish a historical record of uh, testimonies from Iraq, uh, to document violations of human rights and international law that happened, to document also the great worldwide opposition to the occupation of Iraq. So to the extent that those were the goals, I think they were achieved. Of course more could be done and more uh, violations could be documented, etc. But. Uh, one of the goals was also to critique global governance institutions and institutions of international cooperation for failing to prevent the war in Iraq and uh, to condemn them for allowing the British and American governments to occupy a sovereign country. Um, so has that con- condemnation have had any effect? It's hard to measure, but we're talking about it right
1: now. When it comes to campaigning, one of the great positives is that anyone who believes deeply in a cause can get involved. While some do so as individuals, others make the move into full-time activism. Professional organizations can, of course, do great good, but there are some who express concern that by becoming part of the system, professional activists may be watering down their ability to affect the change they want. I asked Armina Ishkhanian if professional
3: activists were necessary to create meaningful change. I think here the question is: What is the benefit of professionalization? What are the drawbacks? Because, in terms of professionalization, what you get is knowledge, you get expertise, you get people who have networks and contacts, which are very, very useful in terms of advocacy, lobbying, or you know, bringing people to the table. To listen and to dialogue but at the same time what that can lead to is perhaps a disconnect with what we would call the grassroots the, the local communities the constituencies who may not necessarily embrace that language or work in that um, way and so there needs to be more dialogue which I would say there isn't as much of because we are working in different worlds and in different means but From again past, looking over the past in terms of successful campaigns, where success has been achieved is having people both inside at the table talking, but also those who are campaigning outside who take that more radical position and are pushing that. But again, examples from the past, for instance, the HIV campaign in the United States, eventually what happened was that the most radical voices lost out. Their demands were not actioned their demands in terms of looking not at HIV not simply as, you know, here's some pharmaceutical drugs to help alleviate the issue, but thinking more radically about how healthcare care um, is, is delivered, how identities are appreciated and, and recognized, was kind of lost out. And so I think there is this nuance, and it is a cycle because you know many groups that may start out, that do start out as very grassroots, very radical, over time can professionalize and institutionalize. So we see again and again, over a period of time, new generation of activists emerging to question those who have become, in their eyes, too disconnected from what really matters. And also, once you professionalize, you have an organization. An organization needs an office. It needs overhead costs. You need to pay people salaries, you know, and I'm not even mentioning here the project costs. So how do you obtain those funds and how do you maintain funding? That, that's, that's difficult. And so sometimes in order to receive funding, to keep funding, you can't be seen as very radical. You can't be seen as entirely revolutionary. So funders, especially state funders, but also international donors and many philanthropic foundations will go for the safe choices. They won't fund the radical activists. So I think this is something that also reproduces a particular type of organizational activism.
1: Chris Rosdale's forthcoming book raises questions over the arms trade treaty which was adopted by the UN General Assembly in 2013 after 20 years of campaigning by Amnesty International and partner NGOs. I asked him for his view on professional activism.
2: There are very different opinions on this. Um, my own is more sceptical, but maybe I'll begin by kind of giving some space to kind of, to the more optimistic uh, side, which works on the assumption that you know, if we think about large activist organizations like Amnesty International, perhaps Human Rights Watch and others, there's the idea that they can kind of help to marshal thousands of activists, tens of thousands of activists, that they have a certain amount of legitimacy that helps them speak to governments around the world, um, that they can kind of trade on some of the radicalism of, of, uh, of movements while being the kind of reasonable poly, uh, policy-centered alternative that kind of actually pushes changes through. And so that would be the argument in the for the arms trade treaty that was passed to the UN um, some four years ago, where a wide coalition of groups campaigned for many years to get an arms trade treaty passed to the UN, and there is now an arms trade treaty at the UN. And Oxfam and Amnesty and control arms were absolutely central to that campaign. Um, but part of the argument goes is that you know those movements were also helped by more radical anti-arms trade and anti-militarist movements that shift the terms of debate, uh, that make policy actors want to respond to the more moderate uh, parts of the movement so that they can pacify those more radical ends of the movement. Uh, and so the idea that there's something of a, a uh, kind of a complementarity between more radical and more moderate sections. I mean, my my sympathies are with more radical and revolutionary politics. And so I guess my argument against is precisely the same, that those more moderate NGOs sap a lot of the more radical energy from campaigns and package it into reasonable policy solutions that in the end don't change that much. I mean, I don't think that the arms trade treaty stops a single weapon from being sold. It doesn't stop Britain selling arms to Saudi Arabia. And if it can't stop that, then it's it's not going to stop any arms transfers. And so my, my fear with those more professionalised movements is that they take a lot of the legitimacy from campaigns, but they end up packaging it into policy wins that don't substantively change the conditions in which we live, but do take a lot of the energy that could be used towards that aim.
1: Whatever the view, there is no question that a message coming from an established organisation will have an easier time reaching a wider audience than calls from grassroots groups or individuals. I asked Aisha Shibuchu how the World Tribunal in Iraq approached
4: the issue of legitimacy. Well, at the founding meeting, when the initiative was named and its tasks identified, a central question that occupied the activists around the table was, where do we get our authority from? What's the ground of our legitimacy to constitute such a tribunal? So we had three days of debate uh, about this. Uh, I think one of the, uh, and there was passionate disagreements. Some people wanted to uh, say this is on behalf of world society. We can take it upon ourselves as world citizens to say this is what should be done. Some people said, well, international law has been violated. If the official institutions of international law will not follow up on their own violation, then it's up to the peoples and citizens of the world to do it. Others said, you know, we are the anti-war movement, we were against this war, and the victors of this war will do everything in their power to make the people of the world forget about the consequences of the war. So it's our task, they said, Some, some of the activists said, as people with conscience, to say, um, we have to create a counter record, a counter history of this war, so that the crimes are never forgotten. And there were others who didn't want to speak a legalistic language. Um, They didn't want to justify themselves in terms of uh, international law or or, uh, other legal ideas, but basically said, this is our politics. And um, the difficulty, of course, was you can find your own legitimacy as an activist to act in the world, while while when you make a declaration to the world, you have to often come up with justifications of why you're doing what you're doing, whereas within yourself, you don't necessarily doubt that you have the quote-unquote right to do it. But once we start speaking this language of rights and legitimacy and authority, you get drawn into uh, a legalistic discourse, which often, in my view, limits our political imagination, limits what can be said and what can be imagined. Chris Rosdale also highlights the challenge that activists face when it comes
1: to deciding how to present their cause. In his forthcoming book on anti-militarism, he is critical of the way the argument against the arms trade is often made, something he terms repressive regimes discourse. I asked him to explain more.
2: So the repressive regimes discourse is something I've been thinking about in part because I've been involved with campaigns through Campaign Against Arms Trade and other organisations that, that mobilise it. Uh, what the repressive regimes discourse is, is a way of problematising arms sales by saying that, look, the British arms trade is, is pretty bad, and we know that it's bad because we sell arms to a bunch of repressive regimes. At the top of the list would be Saudi Arabia, but we can talk about Colombia, we can talk about Turkey, we can talk about a bunch of other places. And the idea of the repressive regimes discourse is that kind of, these are bad countries and so the arms trade must be bad, and it's a pretty effective campaign strategy, uh, and you know, the flagship part of that campaign at the moment is Saudi Arabia. Britain sells more arms to Saudi Arabia than anyone else and Saudi Arabia is currently using British sold weapons uh, to carry out a horrendous war in Yemen that's meant that Yemen is currently in humanitarian crisis and I think it's I mean it's it's trivially obvious that Britain should stop selling arms to Saudi Arabia like that's not something I'm challenging at all but the more I've been involved with that campaign and the more I've thought about it the more I've become a bit uncomfortable with how we structure our opposition to the arms trade through that kind of, that easily spewed list of kind of baddie countries, Indonesia and Saudi Arabia and Colombia and so forth. Because what's missing from that is the fact that many of the UK's arms go to countries that we never mention in those lists, mainly NATO countries that we're talking about here. And there's a normalization of NATO there and there's a normalization of arms transfers amongst Western countries that troubles me because I think that While some of the most atrocious violence is being carried out by Saudi Arabia at the moment, actually it's the military structures of northern states that build insecurity and violence into the system in a more fundamental and long-term way. When we kind of draw a colour line and only look to kind of dangerous southern states uh, that can kind of easily be sold to people as baddies uh, and and we don't talk so much about the United States, France and others. I think there's a normalization that goes on beneath that, that, I think in the long run, makes our job harder.
1: While it's possible that some campaigns might end up failing to have an impact, perhaps in the long run, that doesn't matter. Instead of viewing activism as something that must result in change to be worthwhile, should we just consider it as part of the natural cycle of societal evolution?
3: Here's Armina Ishkhanian. People who can start out in activism don't necessarily end up in, in activism for their entire life. They might fall out of it, you know, sometimes saying, this isn't for me after all, I'll just get a job and do whatever, going into maybe professionalized voluntary sector work. Others, and this is something that part of um, the group of people that we interviewed six, seven years ago, what we're seeing is that they're moving into politics in some instances. So moving away from the street level direct action towards you know taking part in pol- you know, political parties running for office and trying to affect change there. And I think that's something that's becoming more recognized as a trajectory that needs to happen, that if we are to achieve real changes, you need to go into government, you need to go into parliament and have your say there. Now there is the danger that once you go down that path, you will lose you know, you will have to give up, abandon some of the more radical positions that you may have held as an activist. Um, But for some, at least some of the people that I remain in touch with who've taken that trajectory, they say perhaps it will allow us to achieve more influence than we had previously in terms of being activists. Of course, once you're in power anything can change. And we're seeing that in South Africa, for instance, you know, once the ANC came to power, the people who went into government eventually, you know, went in a particular direction. And now, you know, we're seeing second generation activism in places like South Africa, in places like Georgia, which had which had a revolution you know, 15 years ago. So I think, yes, it is a cycle, and it is constant. It is a dynamic process. It's not, you know, that's it. You've you've reached the top of the mountain, and that's it. Everything is perfect. No. It seems the challenges for those outside the power system to bring about the change
1: they want are many. Campaigners must grapple with ethical and moral issues over how to present their cause, and risk spending their time campaigning for a change that may never seem to come. Is it worth it? Can activism really change the world? Aisha Shibuchu.
4: Yes, of course. Uh, One can even say it's the only thing that has ever changed the world. Uh, But with the caveat that it can change the world for the better and the worse. Uh, So not all activism is obviously liberal or left-wing. There is right-wing activism, and I speak as a leftist academic, if I may. Uh, So, activism as such doesn't have a certain political orientation content, but uh, I do believe it can change the world and it will continue to do so. Chris Rosdale.
2: When you ask the original question, can activism change the world, I sort of stopped and then I had one of the many identity crises that I have around this stuff. And I don't know, but I feel relatively confident that it's the only thing that could. That the people organizing uh, uh, and resisting these forms of domination and violence and people coming together to kind of build alternatives in whatever way they can. That's the only way things will change. I think for me the way to avoid despair is to move away from that idea that it's only worth it when you've won. And to get away from that sense that there's a great victory in the sky to which we work. because. There might be, but my instinct isn't, that that's not how human community works. And so instead it's to realise that, uh, oh my goodness, I'm going to say it's, it's the journey, not the destination. <laughs> Partly in the sense that organising in resistance can be poetic and powerful and exciting and, and that it's worth it on its own terms. But also that you don't have to win the final victory for something to be worthwhile. And that we can't always see the ways in which we're successful and the ways in which we're powerful. We can't always see our victories, and our victories often look like defeats, but not quite as bad as the defeats we might have had. But I think it's, it's too easy to say that we have no effect because we haven't achieved our utopia, and to miss the ways in which our organizing shifts things, creates space, and creates communities.
3: And finally, Armina Ishkanian. I would say yes, because if, you know, this year we celebrated earlier in the year the suffragettes, And they changed the world. We now, we're sitting here, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm an associate professor and we have access to education, we can vote. If, if they didn't put their lives on the line, if they didn't break the windows of, of shops and you know, do all of these things which were illegal, which were seen as radical, which were radical in fact, throwing you know, oneself under a horse, um, we wouldn't be where we are. So I think activism does change the world. It doesn't change it overnight. But change does happen.
1: Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ.
0: This episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by Jess Winterstein, James Ratti, Ollie Johnson, Tom Williams and Sue Windybank. It was based in part on the following research. For the Love of Humanity, the World Tribunal on Iraq by Aicha Chiboutchou. Social Movements, Brexit and Social Policy by Amina Ishkanyan. Resisting Neoliberalism, Movements Against Austerity and for Democracy in Cairo, Athens and London by Amina Ishkanyan and Marlis Glacius. Encounters at the Gate in the journal Critical Military Studies by Chris Rosdale. And Resisting Militarism, Direct Action and the Politics of Subversion by Chris Rosdale, which will be out next year. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSE IQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review on the Apple Podcasts app or on iTunes, as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover. Join us next time when we ask, can we afford our consumer society?